In October 1997, a woman named Rosa Delgado went to the corner store with her four-year-old daughter, Rosita. When Rosa and Rosita never made it home from the store, the family called the police. 22 years later, we are still asking what happened to Rosa and Rosita. Some people think they know the answer, and it points back to corruption within the police force. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to the show. Before I get started, I'm just going to take a quick minute or two to plug a few things. There are all ways that you can support the show if you're so inclined. I'm always awkward about asking for these types of things. But there are a few ways that you can show your support. One is to support the sponsors. When you use my promo code or URL, it lets them know that the ad placement is working and the product is something that's interesting to my listeners. I do turn down sponsors, ones I don't feel fit the show or fit the audience. So by supporting the people I do take on as sponsors, that lets me and lets them know that Crime Lines is the right investment and it's a good fit. Another way to support the show is on my Patreon and Himalaya Plus accounts. The donations there really help keep the show going full time. And as a thank you, I put up bonus episodes every month. And I also give you ad-free versions of the regular episodes. There are 11 bonus episodes available right now with more to come, and it's just $3 a month. There are also ways to help that don't involve spending your money. I really want to grow this audience of this show. I feel like I have some really important cases coming up. I feel like I've covered some really important cases that I want more people to hear. So it really helps if you share the show on social media or tell your office mate to check it out, tell your friend to check it out, or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All of that really helps the show. The last plug is actually for another podcast called Rusty Hinges. I write it, and my husband is the host, and we produce it together. It's historic true crime, mostly, and it's funny, or at least it's supposed to be. It has a sarcastic bent to it. Again, it's called Rusty Hinges, and I'd love if you checked it out. Obviously, that show growing is also a way to support just me as a podcaster overall. I'll drop a promo for it at the end of this episode. So with all of that out of the way, let's jump into this case. This one came to me from Sicily on Facebook. Thank you so much for sending this one in. This is the case of Rosa Delgado and Rosita Camacho. And this is another case that a listener has brought me that I've never heard of before, and I really, really got wrapped up in this one. I'm surprised I didn't know about it because it happened in Connecticut, which is where I grew up, and the Hartford Current covered it extensively. I was away at college at the time and not quite so plugged into the internet. None of us were at that point. So I guess that's why I missed it. I'll have a full list of sources on the website when I get it updated, but the bulk of this case came from the current's reporting over the last 20-plus years. They have really held the police department's feet to the fire over this. 
and for good reason, as you will see. As I was reading some of the articles, I wanted to high-five the journalists who worked on this. This story starts with Rosa Delgado, who was just a normal teenager in Hartford, Connecticut. She and her family predominantly spoke Spanish. They lived in a predominantly Spanish-speaking part of Hartford. I'm not bringing this up for fun. It's actually relevant. So when Rosa was 16, she found out she was pregnant. And the father of her baby was a man named Julio Camacho. And Julio Camacho was a local police officer who patrolled the area where she lived. Julio was 32 and married. So we have a 32-year-old man who is in a position of authority in the neighborhood fathering the baby of a 16-year-old. Julio's mother lived in the same neighborhood, but it's not like they just happened to meet and he just happened to be a police officer. Rosa was sitting out on the steps with her friends and her sisters, just hanging out the way teenagers do. And Julio, while patrolling as a police officer, noticed her. How they met is both gross and incredibly important. It's an important distinction in Connecticut because the age of consent in Connecticut at the time was 16, regardless of the age of the other party. So he was not guilty in Connecticut of statutory rape. And if he had just met her while hanging out in the neighborhood with his family, there wouldn't be major consequences to this. But he was on the job. He met her while he was in his uniform and as a person in a position of authority. He could have lost his job over this and possibly faced criminal charges as well. Today in Connecticut, he absolutely would have faced statutory rape charges because the law has since changed. If the older person in the relationship is in a position of authority over the younger person, over the teenager, so we're talking a teacher, a coach, a police officer, the age of consent is actually 18 in Connecticut now if the older person is in a position of authority. But that, as far as I can tell, was not the law at the time. Julio Camacho already had a shaky career as a police officer. He joined the Hartford Police in 1988, and in a year, he was fired because of an assault charge from a domestic violence incident with his first wife. When the charges were eventually dropped, he was given his job back. And that's when he met his second wife, Deborah, who was also a police officer. He had children with his first wife, who he was paying child support for. Deborah brought children into the marriage, who they supported. And now he has a baby on the way with a teenager, Rosa Delgado. But there's actually another child in this picture. A year before Rosa's baby was born, a 22-year-old woman gave birth to Julio's son. And again, it's a woman he met while he was on the job. Julio had responded to a call from this woman that her ex-boyfriend was throwing bricks through her windows. Now, just so you know, Julio ends up having a much messier future, which we will get into. But at this point in time, he has a lot of financial obligations between his own children 
and his stepchildren. He is on the police force, and he is using that position as a chance to meet teen girls and young women. This isn't a guy you want patrolling your streets, and it's actually going to get worse. Rosa gave birth on June 7, 1993, to a tiny, brown-haired, brown-eyed little girl who she named Rosa, but they called her Rosita, meaning little Rosa. Thankfully, the pair had the support of Rosa's big family because she was barely 17 at the time Rosita was born. She couldn't support herself, let alone a baby. Rosa grew up to be a happy and bubbly little girl. She was surrounded by her family. She was just a spark of joy. According to Rosa's family, Julio would come by while he was out patrolling and supposed to be working. But he worked the night shift when you'd assume Rosita was in bed. So I'm not sure how much of a father he was being to Rosita or if he was really just coming around to see Rosa. And though Julio was still coming around, money was a source of conflict between the two. After Rosita was born, Rosa filed for state aid. She was 17, she was single, she needed the help. Well, the first thing the state does in a case like that is to make sure the non-custodial parent, in this case Julio, is paying support. So Rosa never went after Julio for child support. The state of Connecticut did. But that didn't mean that he wasn't holding it against Rosa or her family. Because he was ordered to pay around $750 a month in support for Rosita starting in April 1994. That would be like $1,200 a month in today's money. And that's a lot of money, especially if you consider he was paying support on other children. I am going to just take a guess that this number was on the high side because he had 10 months of arrears going back to Rosita's birth, and they factored that into the number. So it may have eventually dropped if he ever caught up on his back child support. That's my guess on why this number is so high. Obviously, Julio wasn't thrilled at this child support order. According to Rosa's sisters, Deborah, his wife, who he was married to when Rosa got pregnant, she was less thrilled. They said she would call their home, complaining that Julio had all these child support payments and how she was working so hard, paying for his kids. And she seemed to know that Julio was still running around the neighborhood because she'd ask if he was there. So jealousy may have been at play as well. In the meantime, Rosa had moved on. When she was 21 and Rosita was about four, Rosa gave birth to a second daughter with someone who was not Julio. But one of Rosa's sisters told the Hartford Current that Julio was still coming around, and Deborah called them in mid-October 1997. She claimed Julio didn't want Rosita, that he didn't want anything to do with her. He didn't want anything to do with Rosa. And Rosita was four years old at this point. He'd been coming around for four years. So I think the family assumed it was Deborah's wishful thinking that Julio didn't want anything to do with their family. 
and not reality. On October 24th, 1997, this is about a week after Deborah's call saying Julio didn't want Rosita. 21-year-old Rosa had to go to the store. She had to get diapers for her five-month-old baby. She had to grab some milk, just small things. And it was around 4.45 in the afternoon. The store was four or five blocks away. And she had to walk right past where Julio's mom lived in order to get to the store. She grabbed $10. She put it in her pocket. She left everything else behind. She didn't take her purse. She didn't take her wallet. Just 10 bucks in her pocket. She brought Rosita along with her for the walk, but one of Rosa's sisters agreed to stay home and watch the baby. On the way to the store, Rosa bumped into Julio, who was on the corner outside of his mom's place. Witnesses saw the two talking. Nothing I've read indicated that this was an argument or a heated exchange, and I would expect it to be reported if it was. But the two were at odds over the child support issue, so I can't imagine it was a particularly warm and fuzzy conversation either. So right here, we're going to get to our first major discrepancy in the reporting, and you know how much I love these. A lot of the coverage, maybe even most of it, says that Rosa and Rosita were last seen on the street corner with Julio, and no one knows where they went after, making it sound like they never made it to the store. But three months after they went missing, the store owner told the Hartford Current that he saw Rosa and Rosita. He asked Rosa how the baby was doing. She said she was doing good. And then they left, heading in the direction of their home. So they were either last seen with Julio or they were last seen by the shop owner. It is possible that they walked past Julio's mom's house on their way back, but there's no word if a witness saw them talk to Julio again. But the real point is that the last time they were seen, they were somewhere along the path between their home and the corner shop, and we know Julio was also along that path. Rosa's family reported them missing the next day. Even though a four-year-old child was missing, it was a month before the disappearance was announced to the media. A month. We could say, This was a different time, but it was 1997, not 1977. This was after the Amber Alert system started. I know this case wouldn't have qualified for an Amber Alert, and Connecticut may not have implemented one by this point. But what I'm saying is that the conversation about having a speedy response to child abductions, was absolutely happening in 1997. And it had been for a while. The reason for this delay that was reported, I will call it an excuse, They said there was a language barrier with the family. But I'm sorry, that is BS. 
the family had no problem communicating to the media. At least one of Rosa's sisters spoke English fluently. And the Hartford police have translators and interpreters on staff. They have beat cops who are Spanish speakers. You don't think when they arrest a Spanish-speaking person, they just let them go because of a language barrier? Of course not. They figure it out. Why didn't they figure it out this time? The family reported them missing. They gave the pertinent information, and the public wasn't alerted for a month. There is no excuse for that, not for anyone, but especially not for a four-year-old child. Records indicate they did not even speak to Julio, the father of the missing child, and one of the last people to see her and her mother, for weeks. When investigators did talk to him, they told him a witness saw him talking to Rose and Rosita the day before they were reported missing. He admitted it. He admitted he saw them. But when he realized he was a suspect, he got a lawyer and refused to answer any more questions. It seems like a strange picture of a police officer walking around his own department, ducking the other detectives. But it didn't quite happen that way because Julio and Deborah were on leave at the time of the disappearance. Deborah was on medical leave, and Julio was on leave to help take care of her. From what I've read, Deborah has severe and chronic issues with her back. But a few days before the disappearance of Rosa and Rosita, there was a medical assist call to Deborah and Julio's home. Deborah was in the home. She was alive, but she was found with a suicide note. Her service pistol was then taken from her, but I haven't seen anything that spells out what happened next. Did they just talk to her and leave, or did they transport her to the hospital? I don't know. The reality is that things were pretty dark in Julio's house in the days before Rosa and Rosita disappeared. Both Julio and Deborah were off work, and that couldn't go on indefinitely. They had a lot of people to support, and Deborah was in severe pain and apparently suicidal. A lot was happening, and then Rosa and Rosita go missing. In November 1997, we're talking a month after Rosa and Rosita disappeared, and around the time police were trying to talk to him, Julio filed in family court to have his child support order challenged. The child support money didn't actually go to Rosa. It went to her sister who was financially supporting Rosa and Rosita. Julia wanted the child support payment for Rosita to be suspended until a paternity test could be done. He was also filing to have the amount of the payment reduced. And he argued that he hadn't been properly served back in April of 1994 when the order was first issued. So he didn't go to court. Had he been properly served, he would have challenged the amount. He would have asked for a paternity test. He would have done all of that back in April of 94, had he known about the court hearing. Nowhere in this November 1997 paperwork filing did 
it indicate Rosita was a missing child, which is an odd detail to leave out. And the timing to a lot of people seems pretty fast. She wasn't missing very long before he was already trying to file to get his child support reduced. Well, his attorney at the time told Maxine Bernstein with the Hartford Current that Julio and Deborah had actually gone to him a few years before when they realized they had missed this hearing way back when Rosita was a baby. They wanted to challenge it. But at the time they went to him, they didn't have the money to hire a lawyer. So it was really just a coincidence on the timing. But even if he had been planning or hoping to reduce his child support before this, it does seem odd he appeared more worried about the money than about his missing child. At the very least, it's bad optics, seeing as he was a person of interest. The court date for this November filing came up two months later which was January 1998. The judge obviously had heard that Rosita was missing by this point. He ordered that Julio's child support payments be put in escrow. If or when Rosita was found, the money would be given to whoever was supporting her. But he didn't get to just stop paying it. Now, Around the same time, Julio filed for the modification and the paternity test, which is, like I said, like a month after the disappearances, duck hunters found a woman's body in Columbia Lake, which is in New Jersey. It was floating in about three feet of water. And this lake is a solid three-hour drive, if not longer, from Hartford. It's practically in Pennsylvania. The body had been dismembered, so the hands and the head were missing. Clearly, someone did not want this woman identified. Where the body was found was in a remote area that's really surrounded by trees and fields, but it doesn't necessarily mean the person who left the body there knew the area well, like we expect with these remote dumping cases. This spot was right off the interstate, right off I-80. And not only was there an exit close by, but the highway actually went over the area of the lake that met with the Delaware River. So someone could have gotten off the highway, drove into the woods a bit, and dumped her in the lake. But it's also possible the person just saw the bridge and pulled over on the highway and dropped her over. This Jane Doe was called the Lady of the Lake locally as they attempted to identify her. Hartford police learned about this body almost right away. They were already watching for reports of unidentified murder victims because of Rosa and Rosita's disappearance. And two and two were put together pretty quickly. However, for some ungodly reason, the two jurisdictions didn't work well together. We're talking, we have Hartford, who was handling the missing person side of things, and New Jersey, which was handling the Jane Doe. 
Both sides have defended the work they did, but I don't know how. Ten months after the Lady of the Lake was found, it was announced they believed she was Rosa, and the article said they were conducting DNA testing, which did confirm it in May 1999 that this was Rosa's body. So we're talking a year and a half after she was found. They claimed they worked well together, but it's never been explained why it took a year and a half to run a DNA test to confirm the identity of a murder victim. Seeing as there was also a missing child, you'd think this case would float to the top of the to-do list. They did search the lake where Rosa was found and the area surrounding the lake, and they looked for any signs of Rosa's identity, but also any signs of little Rosita. They didn't find anything, not so much as a hair ribbon, but I think the person who abducted them would not have put them in the same place anyway. Whoever did this went to quite a bit of trouble to make it almost impossible to identify Rosa, taking her over three hours from home and removing her head and her hands. Rosa's head and hands still have not been found, so it's likely they were buried or dumped elsewhere. Someone who went to that much effort to keep Rosa from being identified wouldn't then put Rosita's body anywhere near her. That would make it way too easy to link them back to the mother-daughter pair who were missing. But we don't know that Rosita is dead. The Hartford police now have a murder victim and a murder investigation, and then they have a missing child investigation. In the midst of all of this happening, Julio and Deborah opted not to go back to work at the Hartford Police Department. There are some reports saying that Julio walked by the missing posters of Rosita at the police station every day he went to work. But I'm not sure how frequently he went to work. Over the year immediately after the disappearances, he was on leave for a lot of it, if not all of it, and then he resigned. Deborah had resigned from the job, citing her back problems that originally had her on medical leave. Julio told his coworkers that Deborah still needed him to help care for her, and he wasn't going to be able to return to work. So he retired after 10 years with the Hartford police, a year after Rose's murder and Rosita's disappearance. He took a lump sum pension. The exact amount is not known, but it's been estimated to be around $40,000. If we adjust it to today's money, it's like $60,000. That's really not enough to retire forever on, but it is enough to buy some time to try to figure out how to support the family taking a new career track. With neither of them working on the police force, and shortly after they resigned, detectives executed a search warrant on Julio's home and car. And this is November 1998. So we are in that area 
after they confirmed that they believed the Lady of the Lake was Rosa, but before they had it DNA confirmed. They were definitely investigating Julio as a potential murder suspect. In the home, they found a map of New Jersey that actually had notes on it, leading to western New Jersey, where Rosa's body was found. Like I said, it was almost in Pennsylvania. He has a map leading to that area with notes on it. They also noted that Julio had a number of books on serial killers, which, yikes, I don't want anyone to search my house right now or my bookshelves. But more than just having true crime books about murderers like I have, I'm sure a lot of you listening have, Julio had books about murder, specifically how to commit murder and get away with it. And one of the books included the tip that decapitating a body and amputating the hands is a good way to conceal identity. Now, of course, this is how Rosa was found. In Julio's car, because remember that a search warrant for that as well, they found a wire under the car's driver's seat, and it looked like a garrote. It had a loop on one end, and there was also a handmade hatchet in the car. When they popped the trunk, they found out that the lining of the trunk was missing. Someone tore it out. Not only was the lining missing, the exposed metal had been sanded. I can't personally think of a reason to do this unless something spilled on the carpet lining, seeped through to the metal, and it was something you wouldn't want to sit on the metal. And you didn't trust you could just power wash it away. So I'm thinking some really caustic acid that'll destroy your car or something more like blood evidence, which is obviously what the police were thinking. A month after the search, Julio Camacho was subpoenaed to testify at a federal grand jury. The jury was convened to investigate a few issues, and the murder of Rosa and the disappearance of Rosita were on the list. But they were looking at a much bigger broader picture. They were looking at corruption accusations made against several Hartford police officers, Julio being just one of them. Julio showed up to testify at the grand jury, but took the fifth across the board, exercising his right against self-incrimination. So he would not answer any questions for the grand jury. It took almost two more years of investigation, but Julio was finally arrested in October 2000, but not for the murder of Rosa or the kidnapping of Rosita. That indictment, as far as we know, was never given to the prosecutors. He was indicted on the corruption charges. Remember at the top of this episode where I said Julio was going to get worse? This is the worst. Two women accused Julio of arresting them in 1995 and 1997. They both had such a similar story. It's pretty shockingly similar. He put both of them in the police cruiser, drove them to a secluded area, 
and raped them. After news broke of his arrest, five more women came forward with similar stories. Julio initially pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. On the topic of bail, federal prosecutor James Glasser argued against it entirely, pointing out that Julio was a suspect in the murder of Rosa. To back it up, he revealed several pieces of evidence against Julio that, as a public, as a media, we hadn't heard before. And this was huge. This is the first time Julio was just straight up called a suspect. Some of the evidence that he talked about in court included things like the search of his house and the car lining being missing, things that I've already mentioned. But if you remember back, Julio lawyered up pretty early on in the investigation. He did talk a little bit to investigators before he lawyered up, and they started catching him in lies. And that's when he suddenly had nothing else to say. He realized he was a suspect. He then asked his brother to give him a fake alibi for the evening Rosa and Rosita went missing. Then, Glasser told the judge that Julio was seen with deep scratches right after Rosa and Rosita's disappearances. But it's not clear if the scratches were from witness statements saying they saw the scratches or if Glasser has photographic evidence because it took the Hartford police a few weeks to talk to Julio. I'm going to guess it's witness statements. But had they talked to him early on and he had these scratches, I think that would have been some good evidence to have. What Glasser is arguing here is that basically Julio was a man who was just too much of a risk to grant bail. Not a risk for flight, but a true danger to society because he probably killed Rosa and he maybe killed his own child. Now, the judge agreed that Julio was too dangerous to release, but not because of the murder accusation. He based his ruling solely on the charges of rape. He ruled that those accusations were more than enough on their own to keep Julio behind bars pending trial. This was interesting and revealing, though, because not only did we get more information about Rosa and Rosita's cases than ever before, but because Glasser was saying in open court that he believed Julio did it and that he thought there was enough circumstantial evidence to take Julio to trial for the murder of Rosa. He told the judge that. Now, to put it mildly, Julio's defense attorney was not a fan at all of any of this going on the record. Glasser said that the reason the government hadn't taken him to trial yet was because they were hoping to find some forensic evidence to back up this otherwise very circumstantial case. They only have one shot at a conviction. If the jury decided this case was too circumstantial, there wasn't that thing really linking Julio to the murder, and he got that not guilty verdict, he'd be free. 
we have near absolute double jeopardy laws in the U.S., so that was it. That's why Glasser hadn't taken him to trial yet. Glasser also said that they had a warrant to take Julio's car apart piece by piece to look for any forensic evidence like blood or tissue or hairs that may have made it into crevices that he couldn't clean. This was in 2000. It is 2019, and this case is still unsolved. So obviously, anything they found in the car wasn't enough. In February 2001, Julio was 41 years old, and he pleaded guilty to one of the rape charges in a plea deal. In exchange for the guilty plea, investigators dropped pursuing all other sexual assault accusations against him, which were numerous. These included having non-physically forced sex with sex workers while on the job. Now, the reporting calls it consensual sex, but come on. The women were sex workers, and they didn't have sex with Julio for free because they wanted to. The power imbalance between Julio as a police officer and these women engaged in something that is illegal, that power imbalance makes it non-consensual. Coerced sex is not consensual, even if no physical force is used. I hate this reporting that calls it consensual. Rape is about power. Julio is an admitted rapist, and coercing sex workers falls right into that power play. Julio was one of seven officers who were convicted on similar corruption charges that occurred during the same time frame. So these are the people who were on the force and working at the time of Rosa and Rosita's disappearances. This makes you wonder if there was a culture of corruption within areas of the Hartford Police Department and how that impacted Rosa and Rosita's cases. And of course, they are still open, unsolved cases, so there is no FOIA. There's no freedom of information. There's no right for someone to get the whole file, go through it, and see where those breakdowns were. So we don't know how Julio's position as a police officer or how corruption within the police force actually affected this case. We can speculate, we can have conjecture, but we don't have those pieces we need to state it as a fact. At sentencing, Julio's attorney asked for leniency because Julio had allegedly also done good work as a police officer and he also faced possible violence in prison as an ex-cop. And the defense then claimed that the victim he raped wasn't, quote, particularly vulnerable, somehow mitigating the rape. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure where this line is going. So about the woman Julia was convicted of raping. She was a sex worker with substance abuse issues, and he arrested her, not because she was doing anything illegal when he saw her. He arrested her because he could. 
and he did so in front of her children, which gave her a lot more motivation to just do what he said and not challenge him or push back. He had her handcuffed when he took her away and raped her. So how that makes her not particularly vulnerable is beyond me because there are very few things you could do to be more vulnerable than this woman was in that moment. I just hope wherever she is, she knows how strong she is for coming forward and taking on the police department. Maybe that's what the defense means by not particularly vulnerable. She was willing to stand up to them. She was a strong woman. But otherwise, I can't even with this not particularly vulnerable crap. Julio got the most severe sentence of anyone convicted in this corruption case, and that was 10 years. And he went away to do his time. But those other charges stemming from his time on the force, the corruption, the rape accusations, those were all dropped. But this plea deal obviously was not going to stop a murder investigation or the investigation into Rosita's disappearance. Deborah moved to Virginia with the children, which included a daughter she and Julio had together. So Julio spent 80% of his 10 years in federal prison. When Julio got out, he moved down to Virginia as well. He had about three years or so of supervised release. And as of 2012, no one is keeping tabs on him anymore. Deborah told the press that she and Julio split up when he went to prison, but their daughter has said on social media and internet posts that Julio and Deborah reunited after he got out of prison. She characterized both of her parents as unstable and violent and said she was speaking out because Rosita was her sister and she wants to know what happened to her, even though she never actually knew her. I think investigators may have hoped they'd have some time with Julio in prison for eight years to then build a case against him for Rosa's murder. But it didn't pan out that way. In spite of their efforts, when he was done doing his time, they were not ready to take him to trial for the murder. There was a $100,000 reward that was offered in the case starting in 2000. They put up billboards in English and Spanish, but it didn't bring in any tip they really needed. They also drained a large portion of the lake Rosa was found in, but they only found animal bones. Then in 2016, the FBI dug up the yard of the house Julio and Deborah owned when they lived in Cromwell, Connecticut. That's the house they were living at at the time of the disappearances. They had lost the house to foreclosure after Julio's arrest. And the house that sat on the property burned down in 2003. But authorities were more interested in the yard anyway. What led them to dig up the yard after nearly 20 years has not been made public, whether it was a tip, whether they finally had enough for a search warrant, we don't know. But they dug and sifted and found nothing that we know of. Josh Kovner with the Hartford Current called Deborah at her home in Virginia when the dig was happening to ask her about it. And 
Deborah didn't seem to know very much about it, but she did say that she thinks about Rosita every day. In 2018, the Columbia Lake, which is where Rosa was found, it was drained completely. This wasn't connected to the murder case at all. The New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection was removing the dam that formed the lake. It was an artificially formed lake. And something to do with eels making it to their breeding grounds. I don't know. But in draining it completely, it became obvious there was no more evidence related to Rosa and Rosita in the lake. Now, this case is so similar to the Selena and Allison Dalton case I covered a couple weeks ago. It's almost shocking how many similarities there are. Both are mother-daughter pairs where the mother has been confirmed to be murdered and the little girl is missing. The fathers in both situations have come under suspicion, though Julio far more than Daniel Pompel. With Daniel, we have the police saying it's not their policy to name suspects, but they also say they haven't cleared him. But with Julio, we have a federal prosecutor in open court saying he believed Julio did it and they were building a case against him. If you remember with Allison, there was hope she was still alive and being raised unaware of the circumstances of her early life. But because Daniel was being looked at within hours of her going missing, it was hard to imagine that he had time to pass her off or that the police wouldn't have tracked down who he gave the baby to because they were right on it. But with Rosita, Julio had a few weeks lead time before he was questioned. He had family in Puerto Rico, and that has been one line of the investigation to see if Rosita had been sent down to the island to blend into a relative's family. She spoke fluent Spanish when she went missing. She only had emerging English skills. So she could have very easily blended in as just, oh, my cousin sent his little girl down here to be raised near family. And no one in the community would have really thought twice about that. And for those who don't know about North American political geography, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. You can just go there without a passport. You can move there without a visa. Rosita would have needed a plane ticket, and that has not been found. Additionally, when the award was announced in 2000, they ran a parallel campaign between Hartford and two cities in Puerto Rico where Julio's family was. And I'm sure the police down there made inquiries as well, checked into the family dynamics, but nothing came to it. If she was alive today, Rosita Camacho would be 26 years old. She went missing at the age of four. If her name was changed, she very likely does not remember her birth name at all. First name, last name, none of it. Her age or exact birth date could have been changed as well. Though she only spoke Spanish at the time of her disappearance, she has likely learned English through school but she may have blended into a family in a Spanish-speaking country or territory. If you have any information on Rosita's disappearance or Rosa's murder, you can call the Hartford Police Department at 
860-527-6300. But if you know anything about Rosita Camacho's disappearance, you can also call 1-800-THE-LOST. As always, these numbers will be in the show notes. I'm Lars, and unlike every other suburban white man, I have a podcast. It's called Rusty Hinges, and it has inexplicably made it to season two. In season one, we talked murder, mayhem, mystery, and hoaxes. I think we'll stick with this winning combination. Look for a Rusty Hinges episode on the murders of Isidore Fink and Letitia Turow, two famous locked room mysteries. Get lost in the woods with the good people of Bennington, Vermont. And join me as we follow the path of a man we all briefly believe lives the American dream of launching his kid into the sky in a balloon. You can find Rusty Hinges wherever you find great podcasts. Well, you can also find it where you find terrible podcasts. That's Rusty Hinges. It's a podcast. Go listen. Go listen.